Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, I have such a special treat for you. And I'm trying not to put pressure on our guest by saying (laughs) that. (laughs) But we have your favorite, Christine Louis de Cannonville, who on a Saturday with me, we were just chatting off, you know, ourselves and said, well, let's just start recording this. And she hasn't been on in a while. Um, as you, as those of you who know, she's an author. She's also a psychotherapist, and there's this long scroll of all the other things that she does. And I'll leave it to her to decide what she wants to <laughs> update anyone on. But um, she's uh, her books have been amazing. She's one of the people that I send long, rambling emails and silly nonsense too, uh, along with Andrea Schneider and Michelle Mallon. And, um, and I'm so excited that you're on Christine. Welcome back. Well, good. Hello to everybody. So nice (laughs) to be back. It's been quite a while, hasn't it? I know. And that introduction was so long, people started snoring. (laughs) So I had to cut it off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it has. So you've had your first book, then you wrote your second book. Tell our listeners the names of those two books. Okay, well, the first book I wrote was The Three Faces of Evil. And that book basically is describing the three, what's called the dark triad. That's the different levels of narcissism, because quite often people don't realize that it is a spectrum disorder, which Mm -hmm. means that there are different degrees of it. And of course, the higher up the level or scale you go, the worse the abuse is from a narcissist. So knowing what you're dealing with, I think, is quite useful. Um, I didn't know what I was dealing with. with, I had a psychopathic brother, but I didn't know what I was dealing with at all, other than it was at times horrendous. But once I was able to actually see where he was on the scale, it also explained an awful lot of my abuse And also of my own defenses and my own pathological behavior, if you like, that came Mm -hmm. from that time. Um, Then the second book I wrote was um, When Shame Begets Shame. Uh, This book really explains how narcissists hurt and shame their victims. Um, I've tried to explain that... um, Basically, basically, I see that narcissists and the fic- their victims, which I call co-narcissists mm-hmm. rather than codependents, because I don't actually, I think there is a difference between a co-narcissist and a codependent. The codependent um, is the an awful lot of therapists will speak of the victim as codependent, but what they're seeing is similar behaviors. But there are very, very, very different reasons. The behaviors that the victim adapts is to survive the abuse that they're in, right. not because they need they need somebody else to live through through their lives and be happy through somebody else's life. And that's what a codependent does. 
So I'd see. So for that reason, I call the victims co-narcissist. Um, I know a lot of people have difficulty with that title. I don't think it's the best title in the world myself, <laughs> but I'm hoping somebody else will come up with a better um, angle. But definitely, I don't want to call them co-dependents. And both the the sad thing is that the narcissist and the co-narcissist very often experience similar things throughout their childhood. And that is both of them have probably been exposed to a narcissist while they were growing up. Doesn't matter whether it's a parent or whether it's a grandparent or somebody in school, or in my case, it was a, a sibling. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter. But both develop different um, pathological behaviors as a result of that experience. So that's what my book is about. I'm describing basically the behaviors of the narcissist and how they project. The, the, the narcissist is very shame prone, very, very shame prone. They're very, very easily shamed. And um, then they can't tolerate that at all. And so they will project that onto the person uh, who has shamed them. So naturally, then the, the victim who lives in that environment has to survive that shaming in some way. So they adapt their own uh, defense mechanisms in order to cope. Most of the time or a lot of the time with the because I work with the victims of narcissistic abuse and it's quite prevalent that I see that a main uh, one of the main defense mechanisms of the co-narcissist is their pleasing behavior mm. so the pleasing behavior really is very clever it's a way of trying to keep safe it's a way if if I could keep my brother calm and happy, then he was less likely to go into one of his rages. It didn't always work, but if he didn't go into a rage, then I was safer. Right. If he went into a rage, I was going to be battered or, or what I, I punished in some way. So the book basically is all about that. So it looks into the how the narcissist is formed and how the co-narcissist victim then forms their own. They're, they're both using defense mechanisms, but they're using different ones in order to basically stay safe. So they're both really wounded children, and but they're acting out their behaviors in very different ways. One happens to become narcissistic and the other one becomes the victim. Right. And then they will live out those roles throughout their, throughout their adult life until such time that they realize, if they ever do realize, um, what's happening. And then then they can work on changing. And do you still think that, you know, the higher the spectrum goes on the narcissistic, you know, scale, that the degree of being able to change lessens the higher you go? I think that... A classical narcissist, that's the lower scale. If they want to change and they're willing to put the work in and they're willing to be vulnerable, I think that they probably can change. However, once they become malignant, which would be the second phase, or they become a psychopath, then there's very, very little chance uh, probably no chance of them changing, but they wouldn't want to change anyway. Right. Because they get their needs met very well with their antisocial behavior. Um, they frighten everybody into complying with their wishes. Um, so they don't see a need to change anyway. Uh, so n no, the, the, from the malignant narcissists up, no, I don't think that they're going to change. Yeah. I don't see that either in their, their, and it comes in so many colors and flavors. That's the thing that's been 
that's not a surprise anymore, but every time I would run into another one, cause I was still working through and, you know, listen, we always are going to run into them, but one that would get there, I was still vulnerable to them being able to, you know, attach like a tick to me. Yeah. Cause I, you know, every time you think you figured it out, you know, someone shows would show up with, Oh God. Okay. Well, that's a new one. <laughs> and yes. it's not like the behavior is different. It's just what they use to try to cover it up can come in many different colors and shapes and sizes. Yes. And of course, for the victim, if you have experienced toxic shame, and we are talking about toxic shame when we're speaking at this level, um, you don't, you probably wouldn't even think about it being toxic shame at all. That wouldn't cross your mind. You don't know. But you unconsciously re react to someone who is shaming you in the moment. You recognize it at a deeper level of yourself unconsciously, and then you'll get into your defense mechanisms automatically. Right. So that's very often when we'll fawn or we'll, we'll, we might take any of the flight, fight or flight, freeze or fawn. There's the four, the four ways we can defend ourselves. So the narcissist, their main defense would be the fight mode. Right. So they go into fight where more, more more than likely the victim is going to go into fawning behavior, surrendering, giving in, pleasing, pomosing, being passive. And that's, that's their first place to go. And they'll do it automatically. Um, and sometimes they're not even consciously aware, like they're being bullied or whatever is going on. But they will react that way to anybody. Right. It doesn't have to be a narcissist. It'll be anyone. Right. They, once they feel that fear in their body, they'll automatically respond. Um, and I think that that's fascinating. I write about all of that in my book, of course, as well. You know what I thought was so funny when we were, you know, the we could write seven, a seven encyclopedia series <laughs> with the emails that's gone back and forth between yeah. Andrea, Michelle and you and me. But at one point you had said, you know, they, that they used to be kind of fun um, and they had been for me too. And now, and then I was just disgusted. And now I'd say, I don't find them fun at all. I'm not disgusted, but I don't find them fun. And, you know, they don't find me fun. They don't stick yeah. around because I don't, I'm not the mouse in the bathtub with that the yeah. cat is getting. So they, once you figure them out and they know that they don't want to play with you anymore. You're not a challenge. So no, they you're not a shiny toy out. anymore. Mm -hmm. You won't be their shiny toy once you have boundaries, mm -hmm. once you have figured them out, because you won't play into the you you won't play into the behavior. And um, yeah, I I did find myself very attracted to narcissists. Oh. I liked the, the fact that they were. I found them quite dynamic and quite exciting. Um, and of course, I was the perfect person for them too, because <laughs> I would let them have all the drama and the limelight I didn't need the limelight in fact I wasn't comfortable in the limelight so they didn't have to fear me wanting to get in on the act mm -hmm. um, and so we were a perfect match really yeah and there's a chapter in my book and um I talk about the narcissist being a gift to the victim Right. If only if only they realize it. Now, I'm sure that's going to upset a lot of people if you take it literally. I don't yeah. mean it literally. I mean it spiritually, much more yeah. at a spiritual level of the self. Because both these children, because the damage to the narcissist and the co-narcissist happened in childhood. And both these children have been badly, badly wounded but they act in their, their, their complete opposites of each other in the way they act. Mm -hmm. But it's through the other one that we actually get to see ourselves. if only we realized it. We can actually, it's only through the nurses that I've actually learned about my pleasing behavior. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was, I thought I was just 
nice. I thought I was just, <laughs> you know, um, a bit shy. I had no idea that actually this was promising and this was surrendering and being passive and pleasing. I didn't know all of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's fascinating. I think t- in some ways, too, I've noticed that, um, I mean, I don't, I have my ways of shying away from the limelight, um, but then I also don't shy away from it because of what I do. Um, so there's different levels of how much limelight you really want. And, um, and so, you know, if, if one comes in, I already have some limelight and, um, usually the ones that come in have been historically ones that think that I'm going to make them a star or they're going to learn everything I do and then go in 20 minutes and then go do a competitive thing to me or whatever. But I think what I'm, what I'm finding and hopefully I won't be proven wrong next week that I just said this, but um, is that, you know, the more confident I am about being in my own limelight and also not being in the limelight, the more my cup is full uh, of love and self-care and good friends and continuing to work on myself, uh, the more that their uh, behavior is this stark contrast that I notice. And the more I'm able to hear my gut going, I feel really uncomfortable. I don't know what that's about, but I don't dismiss it anymore. And if, if someone tries to like, you know, uh, step on my toes about something, I think I have enough respect from so many people around me that maybe that that helps knock a few of them away from even trying to get in the door. Does that make sense? Because there would be a lot of toes that they would have to step on to step on my toes right at this point. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. But then you have learned an awful, you know, you've been doing many interviews. (laughs) You've been doing a lot of personal work on yourself, as I have. Um, Now I can speak differently. I was more talking about the. I, I can still be shy. I can still want to retreat, mm-hmm. and, and I do. I I acknowledge that when there's those times, then I allow myself to do that, yeah. as opposed to it happening unconsciously. I'm aware of what I'm doing, um, but yeah, I I would not tolerate a narcissist. Now I mm-hmm. meet them. I'm in their company. I spot them immediately. Um, I'm not judging them. They just are who they are, and I'm just who I am. But I'm not willing to put up with the game playing that they do. Um, I'll just remove myself away from them. But because I do that, I'm no longer that much of an attraction to them anyway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's funny when you make whenever that switch happens, uh, you know, where you, you do that. And it's not like an egotistical, oh, I don't, it's not that at all. It's way, for me, it feels very humbling because of course they come in and sometimes I um, do use some of the things I have learned from them on new ones that come in (laughs) to sort of suss out what the hell is going on with this person? Like what? And so I'll use things I've learned, not cruel, mean things, but just the, the tactics that they use. And, you know, they, it's sort of like, like that saying, you give someone enough rope and then I go, okay, well, that's too bad. Time to do the process that I have to remove myself without it being an apocalypse from this person's (laughs) radar. (laughs) And of course, the the more easily we can do that without our own drama coming in, like it's not, for me, it's no longer fear-based. I'm not fearful. I'm not afraid of in any way. Uh, I see through it. I see through the games. Um, I see through the grandiosity very, very quickly. And that, you know, and I, I just accept them. Okay, well, as I would, you know, 
a cat is a cat and a dog is a dog right. and they're all beautiful in their own ways but you know do I really want to play with this person right. generally no I don't if I have to stay in their company then I'll become quite boring I'll talk yes. to the person next to me I'll withdraw from them and they pick it up very very quickly um not that they necessarily know that they're doing it but I'm I'm not where before I'd have been moving in my body <laughs> language giving them a hundred percent attention and oh really and of Bonnie course I'd be excited them. I'd be excited with them the more excited they got the more excited I got and um but now they basically it just doesn't interest me and I don't interest them thank god and thank god I know I just was on a a conference call and someone was on it that just you can see it from a mile away it's the same thing again and again and again and it I I tried really hard not to sound dismissive because there were other people on the call and I knew that okay if I they don't know the history, you know, so I'm like, if I sound dismissive, I'm going to sound like a jerk. It took everything in me as this person's bragging about all their accomplishments, which is completely unnecessary in the context of what we were doing, but they have to do this every yeah. single time. Yeah. And I just, man, it took the skin of my teeth to sound as least dismissive as possible, but I took control of it and said, you know what? And I thank you, you know, for sharing, but that's not really um, relevant to this conversation. You're welcome to, you know, talk about that stuff on a, another time, but we need to really focus on da, 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 da. So. <laughs> yes, you took control. Yeah. And I have yeah. to, you know, I wouldn't yeah. have done that if I was, if I, this was, I was the one that did the call. If I was at some other place and it was somebody else's show, I wouldn't yes. have been dismissive like that. I'd be like, that's your job. And yeah. I would have just ignored that person. But it's kind of funny when you see one that, you know, and you see, oh my God, this is the same behavior from the history of time that I've known this person. Yes. Do they know how many people have walked out of their life complaining about this and they still keep on. Yes. But that's their journey. And, you know, in case I'm coming across that I've become very hard or harsh, I actually haven't. I actually mm -hmm. do view them with great compassion. Yeah. I actually see them and I, I do see their vulnerability and I'm very... I'm very attracted to vulnerability as well. Anyway, um, I actually do see their vulnerability that they are like they are childlike, that they are trying to sell themselves every moment, and, and mm -hmm. that is part of the distress that they're in. That's their anxiety showing itself. Um, they don't want to be upstaged because that would only shame them and that would trigger them and then they have a rage and then they have to deal with that. So I actually do feel a great deal of compassion. But I also have compassion for myself too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, where I don't want to insult or harm or be, or be cruel in any way, right. I just know there's a time with some people to withdraw. Yeah. And it's amazing. You can do that without hurting anyone. They don't even actually realize that they just find you boring when you do that. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm happy to be boring in those moments. It doesn't cost me a, a feather to be boring. <laughs> I know that's that's when I really had to look at a lot of my own ego stuff was this need to be right. And when you're in a fight with a narcissist, uh, that's high, well, any, but really high up on the spectrum, mm -hmm. you know, you, boy, um, just, I, I prefer peace. So if they need to be right, uh, I'm out, you know, that's fine. Be right, be right all day long and yeah. go away with your rightness and talking whatever you need to say about me and or but I prefer to just be completely boring or having them think I'm stupid yeah. and I don't know what I'm doing I'm totally okay with that too but I had to get to that place because for a long time and I think this is part of the journey it, they are they've so eroded your self-esteem and your self-worth uh, that 
in some ways I needed those first few relationships where I slung it right back. I needed to do that to yeah. prove to myself that, Hey, I, I don't know. I'm not taking on your stuff. I am not who you are trying to project yourself onto, but I don't need to do that anymore because I proved it already. <laughs> yeah. No. But I think that only comes out of understanding the behaviors, mm. your, you know, definitely the narcissistic behavior, but also your own behavior and your own defenses. When yes. you fully understand them, then the fear is taken out anyway, and you can just see it for what it is. You don't even have to judge it most of the time, but it's also part of your own self-care. That's true. That's very true. That's very true. And it's it's a growing up thing and living in reality thing when you, um, you know, you don't have to fight anymore because you're yeah. you're out of that stage and you can look at them with compassion like you would anyone else and yes. not really, you know, with a judgment finger. Just um, I don't know. It's nice to be boring, isn't it, Christine? <laughs> Well, in certain company, it's a, it's a must. <laughs> yes, if you want to stay safe, then stay boring in some company. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, it's it's nice to be thought of as a dunderhead that doesn't know what she's doing in some company. <laughs> yeah, and the the you know the the sadness too is when the narcissist first um, is attracted to their victim. Generally speaking, they um, they they see you as superior in the beginning. Right. That's why they're attracted to you. That in itself is an attraction because if they can rub shoulders with you and if they respect you, then also they think that also they get that same respect then from others. Right. But it's not very long before that will annoy them. That will you know, they want to reduce you down to being inferior. Um, and that is just the way it is. And if you can understand all this, that they don't even realize that they're doing that. They don't understand their own their own behaviors at all. They know how to they certainly know how to manipulate and how to seduce and all of that kind of thing. But they don't know that the woundedness that they carry is what they're trying to uh, that is at the real cause of what what is happening in their relationships. And they lose relationships all the time. So right. they're constantly being rejected. Yes, they are. And that's sad. That's very, very sad for anyone. Yeah. It is. It is. It's. It is very, very, very sad. Um, I think too. Um, it. It helps to have that time and that space and that distance uh, f for you, the you know, the co-narcissist, to work on your own stuff and your own narcissism and all of those things. But somehow, uh, I don't see how I could have come to where I'm where I am now which feels really good and lots more to learn of absolutely but I, I couldn't have done that if I hadn't just went whoosh with my life and took lots of space and time and distance from people that were um, you know around me that were extremely narcissistic so mm. I don't see how you can do that when you're still in their company I I, I just don't no, you can't because you're constantly in defense mood. You're constantly it, it, you're 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 in battle all of the time, but you yeah. don't even realize you're in battle. And for anybody who's listening, who's actually maybe at the moment going through getting away from a narcissist, um, when you start to do, I I do really think that educating yourself is a really good thing to do. And the internet is fantastic. Even yeah. if you don't have much money, there's plenty of educational stuff on the internet to, to learn from. Um, but we also have to learn about our own self because one of the biggest things that uh, probably was the best thing that ever happened to me was I was go just come through a terrible time with a narcissist and 
I realized that that was the fourth time in my life that I had actually come through something similar. Mm. And I actually said to myself, I actually did ask myself, could there be something I'm doing that's creating this? Yeah. Now, I wasn't trying to blame myself or shame myself by asking that question. It just seemed a logical one. The one denom common denominator in, in these four events were me. So right. I thought, I wonder, is this something I'm doing? And I actually decided to go in, back into therapy, and I started to go on that journey. And I knew that if ever I was going to write, I owed it to everyone that I understood my position as well. Because mm. if there was something I was doing, I needed to know because I didn't want this to happen again. But I, And also I owed it to readers, if there is something that we're doing, then the victim also needs to know that they need to do a little work on themselves. And th yeah. that was what I discovered, of course. I, that was when I discovered all my defenses you know, especially my pleasing behavior, which went into all kinds of areas. I had no boundaries. Everything, yeah. I gave everything away. I went, I gave everything away. But then again, you know, how can you build healthy boundaries when you're being brought up in an environment where there is a narcissist? In oh my, my case, God. a psychopath. You, you can't because... The narcissist cuts across every boundary that you have in order to get your control. They're, yes. they're getting the control by doing that. So when when you have no healthy boundaries in place, then at the same time, you have no insulation from right. the narcissist's constant projections and shaming behavior that's lumped onto you. So you need to, you know... And please, please don't think I'm shaming victims or blaming them. I'm not doing either. But mm -hmm. yes, you need to look and see what are your defenses that you've built up and where they served you well as a child. And thank God for them. And thank God for the intelligence of that child to be able to develop strategies to save themselves. Are they actually working against you as an adult? And that right. was the journey I went on. Yeah, and that's that's huge. That is a huge one uh, to because they just because you built them up during at times of extreme trauma, and for survival mode, they're ingrained so deeply into your way of moving about in the world that it takes a lot of unwinding to even recognize. I mean, isn't it nice now when you? you know, you know, like I know when I'm retreating, it's like you said, it's a conscious choice. I know when I'm, oh, you just gave the farm away, Kristen. Why do you do that? Like, and, and but even saying, why do you do that? I don't do that either anymore. I did that for a long time. Now I go, you just gave the farm away, girlfriend. Yeah. Let's not, you know, let's not do that. I'm how I talk to myself about the things that I do that, you know, that I, that I'm conscious of more and more conscious of is so much nicer than it used to be too. I talk to myself like I'm my friend. Well, we need to be our own friend, especially when we start our own recovery. Oh, we, yeah. need, we need to be our own friend. We need to be compassionate with ourselves and be soft and gentle with ourselves. And it is quite, well, I found it quite shocking when I discovered all that, the way I danced the dance <laughs> and danced it so beautifully. It was the perfect tango where they were the leading, they were the leader and I submitted to whatever position they wanted to put me in, in the, in this dance. Right. And I was I was shocked because I considered myself to be quite a bright and intelligent person. I didn't think of myself as being a fool. So I was very shocked at the fact that of my own behavior and how unconscious I was of it. But that's all part of the journey of recovery. Yeah. And it, it, it and it, it is, yes, it can be painful. But it's also very, very freeing when you when you go through it. And I'm amazed at the intelligence uh, that I had as a child 
to be able to work out ways to manipulate and control my brother through my pleasing behavior. Right. For your own safety. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm and amazed. Does a child know how to do that? It's amazing. <laughs> I'm amazed at how I, I'm, I don't know how, because my dad would go off on these rages and also, you know, trying to molest me and all these things. And man, did I learn how to dance my way out of danger that's sitting right next to me or sleeping right next yeah. to me. And yeah, that absolutely was life-saving. Yeah. But um, those are also things that I just kept having dangerous people in my life that I kept having to dance away from. And I'm like, you know, yeah. I don't want to dance that kind of dance anymore. So yeah. what, what am I doing to invite this in constantly? So yeah, you're right. You have to, you have to look at that and look at yourself. And the thing mm -hmm. is, you know, so you're part, part of the defense that you're using, yeah. well, you know, and it worked for you in your situation. It, most of the time it worked in my situation. Mm -hmm most of, well some of the time mm -hmm. and um but later on in life it wasn't actually saving me i was actually putting myself in situations of danger right but i didn't even realize that i, d I didn't realize that and of course, then, I mean, I have done some talk about shame. I had to look at my own shame. When I was writing that book on shame, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's actually funny now for me to think about it. I went off to, I go off to an island and I, for a month and I write like crazy. I do nothing else. And I went and I was all geared to go and I was going to write this book on shame. And so I, you know, I got stuck in. And I hadn't written very, very much, maybe six or 7,000 words, something like that. And suddenly I became really ill, really ill, out of the blue. <laughs> and um, I went into a fever. And the fever lasted for six days. I was in bed for six days on holiday. wasn't able to write or do anything. But where it was like I was going through a holotropic session. Holotropic is where is a form of therapy where you alter your states of consciousness mm. and you go into past memory. And this is what happened to me in these six days. I actually went through every bit of shame in my life. Shame that was lumped on me or projected onto me, but, but more shame that I had created for myself mm. in my own behaviors. And it was like a nightmare I went through for those six days. But what I didn't realize then was, because I had done therapy before and things like that on myself, I thought I had reached most of my memory. But I actually got to cellular memory that I had never got to before. Never. And that's where it threw me. So I couldn't write anymore in the holiday. I wasn't able, I, di I didn't dare go back and start looking at that so i left until the next year to go back to the island and to write again and when i went back the next year it was all free it was all cleared and i was able to write just let it flow just let it go but i needed to experience that so that people can understand even when they think they've done their therapy right there is another layer maybe hidden Right. away because we weren't ready the body is intelligent you know the body is not just our mind that's intelligent our whole body is intelligent it won't release memory if you're not ready or the conditions are not right but when the conditions are right it will release yeah so, that's, that's true so that's what happened to me on my island i remember that because i remember andrea and michelle and i were like do we call an airlift how do we get her out of there what is happening <laughs> yeah i mean you know that's the true sense of uh you you uh, you know you're experiencing what you need to convey to yeah. the people that will be reading your work. So you've got to work through your own stuff before Absolutely. you can put it out there. And if it takes, I look at time so differently now. I mean, some things, 
yes, you know, you've got to get them done because they're tasks and whatever, but other things I'm like, well, you know what? You know, I I used to be like, everything has to be done yesterday. And now I'm like, you know, I think that that's a goal for me to meet at the end of this year. Uh You know, I'm much more willing to, you know, to let things have a process and, and be, because they're going to anyway, so I'm not really letting them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, you know, time is a wonderful thing. And if you make friends with it, then I think you can kind of learn how to utilize it to be kinder to yourself. And at the same time, time is an illusion. Right. It's not even real. It's a perception we have. And I say that because, you know, I've been a therapist nearly 30 years. And the listener now listening to me saying this, you know, this was only a couple of years ago that I'm talking about this experience. Um, You know, I'm in my 70s. And I'm still learning about myself. I'm still learning more. There's, There's a pool within me. I'm hoping I'm getting towards the end of that pool by now, but I'm not sure that I am. And um, I'm open to the adventure if I'm going to learn more about myself. So don't worry about how long, you know, people get hung up. How long will it be before I'm over all of this? Right. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That I, I remember being there, too. Yeah. Because you're, you're miserable, so you want to know when's the end date. <laughs> but I have I have actually read on the internet people who are working with victims and saying in six sessions, you know, <laughs> have six sessions. And, and, you know, that's not true. You know, th- that makes then a person who isn't right in six weeks feel that they're a failure or something. You know, there's many, many layers to us. Yes. And yes, you might reach one layer. And certainly if you are willing to do your research around understanding narcissism, that's a wonderful help going into the ther- therapy room. And if you're lucky enough to have a therapist who understands narcissistic abuse and what happened to you as a victim, that is also very beneficial. Not everybody will have that. But it's a process you go through. It's a lifelong process process possibly right because there's we're we're really very complicated beings we've many layers to us and we're amazing we're absolutely amazing people (laughs) don't you think yes ah yeah i'm i'm constantly i mean gosh look at what i do for a living i get to have conversations with so many people and you know i mean i i find all us human beings endlessly fascinating And if you hadn't done the work on yourself around the subject we're talking about, narcissistic abuse, you wouldn't be able to speak to me the way you are. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be able to be as vulnerable in this conversation as I am. I'm quite happy to lay open my wounds and show that, yeah, yeah, I'm wearing my my wounds actually with pride now. Mm -hmm. They're they're my, my battle scars. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when you look, when you get to that place of uh, being friends with yourself, um, then you, you know, you look at yourself with loving eyes, not in an egotistical way of, Uh oh, I don't have, you know, everything I do is rainbows and lucky charms. Ha ha. Irish. (laughs) It isn't. It's just like, I, um, I wouldn't speak to myself the way that I did for 40 some years yes. now uh, because that's not nice. And um, I wouldn't talk to my friends that way. I don't talk to myself that way. And I don't, my getting to this place, which took a long time means that I don't allow other people to come in and behave rudely or haughty and superior with me or you know they they may do it but I they don't they're not anyone I'm going to stick around with yeah and also for us all to remember that we are all narcissistic to some degree absolutely and our narcissism can spike at certain times like 
at the time of a bereavement is an ideal time when our narcissism spikes and, and we go into fear and we're, what's going to happen to me now? How am I going to cope with this? And we're all self-focused, but that's totally, totally natural and normal. Yes. If we're not pathologically narcissistic, as we grieve, we'll come out of that place of our narcissism. We'll come back. We are, are you know, we'll come back to the base level again. That's what does not happen for the pathological narcissist. They don't come back to a base level. They they stay in that spiked place all the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's I'm I there's some, you know, therapists out there that absolutely believe that any degree of narcissism narcissism is bad. And I just think it's such a disservice to to say that and to think that and to tell victims that because then I found a lot of very narcissistic people throwing that word around and using it, you know, to shame other people who, okay, so yeah, they behaved narcissistically in a moment because of like what you're describing, but that word was being used as some sort of punishment, some sort of weapon, a weaponized word, like how, you know, people can use Jesus and weaponize Jesus or, you know, all those things. And I was like, "Mm, that's, um... I think that comes with the compassion around it that you stop doing that. And if somebody were to call me a narcissist now, I'd be like, okay, I can act like that uh, during times of stress or whatever. I've got my moments, but um, it wouldn't be this big wound (gasps) because I don't demonize that word anymore. Yeah. I think we all have to remember we are all narcissistic to some degree and not only are we, but we need to be because after all, if Narcissism is about taking care of yourself, getting your own needs met. And if we don't do, there are times when we have to insist that we do get our own needs met. So, in fact, it's healthy. That's, you know, it's healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Christine, you're working on, can you talk about what you're working on now? Do you want to? um, I'm writing another book at the moment. And this one will be all about gaslighting. Uh, which is a blend of, um, well, it's mostly coercive control and ambient abuse and how that affects the individual. So I'm I'm going quite deeply into that and um, it's nearly written. So I hope that to be released in the summertime. Mm. Wonderful. Well, I love it. And thank you for agreeing to come back on it took a while for it you to want to <laughs> it has been a while but i'm back and thank you Kristen, for inviting me and where can everybody that doesn't already know um find more information about you okay well i have a website and it's called narcissisticbehavior.net and you'll find my books on there um, as ebooks, and um, there's plenty of free, plenty of free articles, and there's also workshops. I did workshops as well um, for victims, but a north, mostly therapists actually um, attended. So for therapists out there who don't feel that they know too much about the subject, there's three workshops available for sale on my website as well that will certainly give you more than a, a good basic understanding and for working with with clients that are coming into your room and they are coming into your room daily whether yes. you recognize it or not they are coming in and they don't know themselves to say i well most of them won't know to come in and say i'm suffering from narcissistic abuse so you will know from being able to pick up the signs but and sadly, we have come to a place at the moment where actually the victims know more than the therapists. Yes. The, the victims are really on the march doing their research and they actually do know more than um, the therapists at the moment. That's why I went all around Ireland educating our therapists over here. So we have quite, you know, I managed to reach at least 1,500 qualified therapists at least. Good. 
So, um, and we're a small country. So that needs to happen in America as well. It does. And typical American style, the whole, uh, you know, subject of it became its own cottage industry. So there are a lot of narcissists and high spectrum narcissists out there selling books Mm -hmm. uh, that are therapists or life coaches and they're re-traumatizing victims, giving out horrible information and they're making money doing it. So uh, it's, you got to really be careful out there uh, with with that. Be careful of some of the groups yeah. on Facebook and some of the people that even, you know, come up high on the web. So you got to watch out yeah. for some of those, too. Well, my my work is all coming from personal experience, having been a victim. Mm-hmm. And it's also coming from working for many, many years with victims, um, even in a psychiatric hospital for five years where people weren't functioning anymore. But by the damage that was done to them by psychopaths, usually. So, you know, I, I share my knowledge, what I know in my books. Yep. And they're wonderful. And you're a wonderful friend. My wonderful friend. And mentor. No, you're a wonderful friend and oh. mentor. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you, Kristen. Thank you. And I didn't make you quote anything from your book. You didn't. <laughs> as well because I couldn't remember anyway right exactly <laughs> all right well listeners thank you for tuning in I know you've been waiting to hear Christine again it's been a long time so I'm so pleased she came back and thanks for sticking it out with us on mental health news radio I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. So-